Is the heart of the Trump trial about to fall apart? I'm Matt Robeson, Beyond Politics, of course, available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm like constitutionally obligated to say that. And we're on the Blue Amp channel on YouTube. I'm just delighted to welcome back a friend of the show, Kim Whaley, who is a constitutional scholar and tenured professor of law at the University of Baltimore School of Law. Kim, you're much more than that. Remember how James Brown used to be known as the hardest working man in show business? You're the hardest working woman in law and media. You have a lot going on. You're like Spaceballs, the breakfast cereal, Spaceballs, the flamethrower. You've got a Substack. You've got another book coming out. You are on TV. You're on podcasts. You're everywhere. How? When do you sleep, I guess, is my first question. I do get, I slipped that part in, but there's just so much going on in the law. This is our, one of the things Donald Trump has done is put the constitution front and center and challenged it right and left. So I'm meeting the challenge. Yeah, that's true. Yes, right. The times call for someone of your unique abilities. All right. Before we get into the main question that I teased a moment ago, and this is a real thing, the legal basis that is at the heart of Jack Smith's case could fall apart in the next few months. I do want to talk a little bit about your Substack. It's called Simple Politics with Kim Whaley. Uh, it's great. It's the, the simple, what you're really doing is sort of the Venn diagram confluence of politics and law, which is extraordinarily valuable these days in, in, in the age of Trump. Why did you start Substacking? It's cool stuff. I started all of this kind of public facing legal analysis really around my passion for education. And there's so much misinformation and lack of basic understanding of civics. So the podcast, or excuse me, the Substack, I don't do a podcast yet, but the Substack <laughs> breaks stuff down into basic Q&A. So people, it's a one-stop shopping. If you just not only want to know what the news is in the law, but the foundations behind it. And I just started a brand new class of 1Ls on constitutional law and explaining how we're not a monarchy, Matt, and how we have three branches and why we have three branches. And every branch gets their papers graded by the other two. And that we are, that's something that I think is slipping through our fingers. People seem to think a monarchy is okay with, if it's a certain person. So that's really the substack is to just get people who are interested, educated without a ton of investment in background reading independently. Right. I think that's one of the great things about it is that it's sort of for the it's festivus for the rest of us. If you're interested in all of the legal questions that have arisen again in the age of Trump, but you don't want to invest in a law degree. But you also wrote a helpful book about this, how to think like a lawyer. And I'm very fortunate that I read it because now I can actually talk to you and feel like I, I know a tiny bit about what you're saying. You also do have a new book coming out. And this is interesting. It's called Pardon Power, How the Pardon System Works and Why Why Do We Need to Understand the Pardon System? I have a sinking feeling that I know the answer, but what, what did you have in mind? Honestly, this was one that I was approached to write it, and I think it was very prescient. And I said, sure, uh, no one's written a soup to nuts explanation of not just the president's pardon power, but states can pardon state law crimes. And what are we facing? Potentially a pocket pardon, as my friend Glenn Kirshner calls it. That is, in these two federal cases, did Donald Trump try to pardon himself and stick it in a top drawer at Mar-a-Lago? He said that he believed he had the power to do it. I think it's 
foolish to assume he didn't give it a shot. So we might see that arise in these two cases. But also, of course, he's promised to pardon all the January 6th insurrectionists, over a thousand of them that have now... Hostages is the term du jour, (laughs) according to Elise Stefanik. Oh, okay. Let's talk to the many thousands of people that are in the criminal justice system for other reasons that are disproportionately based racially off off the mark and talk about hostage situation. But uh, essentially, let's Matt, if he does that, he'll have a personal militia that are deeply loyal to him that that will do his bidding in the second term. It's quite powerful. But at the end of the day, the book talks about the pardon power is antithetical to our democracy. It's this relic of common law England. But what I but is and most people just assume, oh, the president has unlimited power to pardon. And of course, Donald Trump pardoned Paul Manafort. He pardoned Steve Bannon. He pardoned his cronies. George H.W. Bush pardoned people in the Iran-Contra. Bill Clinton pardoned his family member. This is not a first, but it's a first in the extent to which Donald Trump used it. Six members of Congress asked for pardons relating to the insurrection. And as I talk about in the book, King George III had constrained power to pardon at the time. The Constitution was ratified. So we're actually assuming our president has more power than the king did at the time the Constitution was ratified. So I really think this is something we all need to pay attention to. And it's in the news once again, like things that Donald Trump has unearthed that we never thought would happen in our lifetime. It's coming out in September. We're going to have to we're going to have to circle back to the book when it's a little bit closer to coming out. It's there's so many questions, something I'm looking forward to reading. There's so many questions. And they don't just touch on sort of the politics of the moment. We're As we're recording this, we are fresh off of an execution in Alabama, the first execution of its kind, to my knowledge, on Earth by nitrogen asphyxiation. And Right, which they case, won't use on animals, right? Which they, they won't use on animals. And in, in a case where the jury voted 11 to 1 to give the defendant a life sentence, the judge overrode that judgment of the jury. Elected judge an elected judge, and sentenced the prisoner to death. And it's a reminder of the fact that we give judges this kind of power, this unitary power, to make life and death decisions and and to mete out punishments. And it's an extraordinary amount of power. And so it seems as kind of a first approximation for me that investing a pardon power in an elected official who's the top executive of a state or, or the nation Makes some sense to to have that kind of authority. And it's just, it's interesting. It's fascinating how it can all go so wrong. So that's my best tease for it. We're going to have to return to it and we're going to have to read the book. Let's go to the main topic today. There's there's so much to get into. This is why you're the hardest working woman in law and media. You wrote a piece for Politico, which was really disquieting for me, uh, for a lot of us. And the title is, I want to get this. I want to get this right. The sleeping giant case that could upend Jack Smith's prosecution of Trump. You're not just whistling Dixie here. What is this case and, and, and how could it upend the prosecution of Donald Trump? So this case is not about Donald Trump in particular. It's called Fisher versus United States, but the Supreme Court has taken it. So this is pending before the United States Supreme Court. And it involves whether the Justice Department is properly using a provision of a statute called the Sarbanes-Oxley Act to prosecute January 6th defendants. Donald Trump is being charged by Jack Smith with two counts under the very same statute. So there's four counts against him relating to January 6th. Two of them 
are under the Sarbanes-Oxley Act or the Sox Act. And this Mr. Fisher's case takes swipe at the ability to use this statute for January 6th. So if the court rules in his favor, and just to be clear, there's been over 300 people already either convicted or who pleaded guilty to this crime, and the court took the case anyway, it's not 100%, but it certainly could disrupt, depending on how the court rules, two of the four cases uh, charges against Donald Trump, and the only one that doesn't involve conspiracy. You, and just to tease this idea, you lay out toward the end of your article that my initial reaction of, okay, it's only two of the four, so maybe it's not that bad. You actually lay out what could be a lot worse than that, depending on how things, it could upend the entire case and at the very least delay things indefinitely. But let's just get into a little bit of understanding what's the question involved in the case. It seems to be a reading of, does this Sox Act, Sarbanes-Oxley, which we worked on when I was a congressional staffer, does it only apply to financial crimes? Is that right? And records and documents, essentially. So yeah. it's really the records and documents part of financial crime. So it was after the Enron meltdown and the large accounting firm scandals in Congress, you probably know more than this about this than I do, got together and said, listen, we need to clean up that industry and created this new part of the U.S. federal criminal code. And there's two provisions of the this part of the criminal code. One part talks about obstruction broadly, obstruction of an official proceeding. Separately, it says that official proceeding includes a congressional process. So that would be the January 6th counting of electoral college votes. And it doesn't limit it to different kinds of obstruction. It just says obstruction, period. So the Justice Department has used it to say, if you stormed the Capitol to try to stop the counting of electoral college votes or tried to capture Mike Pence and to prevent him from gaveling in Joe Biden as president, that's obstructing that process. And most lower federal courts that have faced this have agreed with the Justice Department. But if you kind of look above this in the statute, you go to a prior provision of the statute that's just a couple lines above, it talks more specifically about obstruction of a proceeding relating to, quote, altering, destroying, mutilating, or concealing a record, document, or other object. So what Mr. Fishers is arguing is saying, listen, the only kind of obstruction that counts is record-relating obstruction. You, you, meant, you were meant to not be able to shred documents like they did in Enron. Right, exactly. You can't do that, and you've got to read those provisions together, that essentially the only way you get to the broader part is if you show some shredding to begin with. And so but the saving grace for DOJ is, of course, Donald Trump is charged with ma masterminding false slates of electors. A slate of elector is a document. So there's a way the court could say, listen, Fisher, we're going to side with Fisher, but rule in a way that it doesn't affect Donald Trump. But, you know, with this particular conservative court, there's just there's no predicting how the court is going to thread this needle. And if the court says, listen, the whole statute is about document shredding, there's a it's possible that it would make it difficult for those two charges to stick against Donald Trump. This is, I think, what from the political side, people in the center and the left have found most infuriating about this court 
and the kind of strict originalist, strict constructionist bent of, of jurists who have seemed to basically apply, and you've written about this before in the context of Dobbs, they seem to essentially be using strict constructionism, strict originalism as a very flimsy fig leaf for we're going to do whatever we want to do politically because a strict reading of the statute here, and I'm going to read it. You quote this in the article, whoever corruptly obstructs, influences, or impedes any official proceeding or attempts to do so shall be fined under this title or imprisoned. So that word any there seems pretty significant. The other thing that the strict constructionists like to do is they like to go back to the congressional debate. They consider that context to be important because they want to understand language in statute within the context that it was being understood at the time it was crafted. And you quote then Representative Jim Sensenbrenner, who, if I recall right, was the chair of the Judiciary Committee at the time. I may be misremembering. Let me put it this way, folks. This ain't a liberal, okay? This guy is not a friend to the Democrats in Congress. And he repeatedly observed that this law strengthens laws that criminalize document shredding and other forms of obstruction of justice. This seems crystal clear to me. Kim, what am I missing? Let's take a break. We'll be right back. And I just want to add the other piece. Yeah. I mentioned the document shredding part and then the broader language that you mentioned. And the link between the two is the word or, right? It says essentially document shredding or other forms of obstruction. And so to conflate them as all requiring document shredding does seem to replace the word or with the word and. Just to, just to make a point on textualism and originalism, this court is not intellectually consistent or honest about that jurisprudential approach. And I know if they were, right, if they said, listen, we just think you have to narrow the, the jobs of judges, read the plain language and go back to the framing. They're not doing that. So, but they're, but the public believes somehow that's what is the choice. And they're not consistent with that, which me suggest to me suggests that it's not about some philosophy. And let me just give you an example. You mentioned Dobbs, right? So Dobbs, basically the court said, we're going to go back in our Michael J. Fox, uh, back to the future DeLorean time machine, not even to when the 14th Amendment was ratified, but back to common law England, where there were burning witches. I don't know. They didn't mention that piece, but they did get to some arcane stuff about, about some 17th the century fetus. judge, like Matthew Hale, right? Yes, exactly. But, and they said, okay, that's what we have to do. But think about what they did in the Bruin case with the Second Amendment, right? right. With the Second Amendment, where we had a hundred year old statute in New York, and they said, nope, States get to regulate abortion because we love states and we want federalism and we want state power. And so we're going to go back in our time machine. But then when it comes to guns, they're saying, nope, states can't do it. We're not going to go back in the time machine. Hundred years isn't old enough. We're going to go further than that. And even though there were older statutes where they did allow states to regulate handguns, we're going to ignore that part. So they're picking and choosing the language that they think they're bound by as a matter of textualism, they're picking and choosing the parts of history as a matter of originalism. And honestly, Matt, I completely respect people having different approaches 
to interpreting ambiguous language. That's what lawyers do. But I cannot respect when people are not consistent, when they're hypocritical and not intellectually honest. And that's my problem, frankly, with this, some of the justices on the right. If they want to do this, they should do it across the board. This is why I think many of us suspect that the entire idea of strict constructionism is, to use a legal term derived from the Latin, bullshit. It, it feels like complete bullshit because you can literally, you can, it's like Homer Simpson, facts schmacks. You can use facts to prove anything that's even remotely true. You can find a precedent for anything anywhere. And in the Dobbs decision, if you have to reach back to the 17th century and Matthew Hale, who believed that women were literally the property of their husbands and enjoyed no rights, and that is the precedent you're leaning upon for your 21st century interpretation of the Constitution, you've got a problem. And you're picking that. You are cherry picking it. It's the same thing with the Second Amendment and the most celebrated comma in history about a well-regulated militia being necessary. It, it, it reminds me of my three favorite things are eating my family and not using commas, right? And so if it all comes down to this comma, you're choosing your interpretation of this comma. This is like English 101 students, like stay up half the night deciding what this means and there's no right answer. So what you're doing is you're inserting your own right answer and your own preferences and that's what makes me nervous here. Yeah. My first book was How to Read the Constitution and Why, and I talk about this. All my books are about lay people, but I don't sacrifice the nuance and the theory, right? I try to make it so people can read it, but we talk about this. And I use an example of a poem. If any, I was an English major at Cornell, but we all read them in high school, poems or a biblical text or some other kind of religious text. For centuries, people have been in, ministers and religious figures have been interpreting passages in the Bible different ways, poetry. The Constitution is old and it's pretty short. And what does equal protection mean? What what does due process mean? They're all of these, what is freedom of speech? What does speech even mean? None of this stuff is defined. So by definition, therefore, you need to fill in the blanks. And the problem I have, to your suggestion, with this originalism textualism is it's a smokescreen. It, people think that they're adhering to some algorithm, by de but you can't do that with old text. You've got to make a call. And at least on the more progressive side, they're explaining why they made that call based on kind of broader norms, broader values, broader goals. What's the point of the Constitution? They're laying out why they're interpreting it one way or the other, not pretending they're just reading the plain language, which has no plain reading. And people, the American public think, oh, that's what we want. But it's actually giving judges a tremendous amount of power. And I want to say one other thing, because you talked about precedent, going back to precedent. This court, precedent is supposed to constrain the Supreme Court, right? It's supposed to constrain. They are going, they're going haywire on precedent, not just Dobbs. We, I know we are going to talk about the Chevron case, but they're reversing stuff. When they start doing that is a, that's a red flag that this court is being very aggressive about the law, not conservative. They don't deserve the conservative um, mantra anymore. Yeah. It, it, it does have this feeling of, hey, find me 11,000 votes. You can almost picture Amy Coney Barrett saying to her law clerk, Find me a precedent here. Find me a reason to, here, here's how I want to rule. Do they actually do this? I've read any, any number of, of books about the operation of the Supreme Court. Like, 
Is that actually what happens? I'm not fancy enough to have clerked on the Supreme Court, but I did clerk for a federal judge, a district court judge in Washington, D.C., so I can speak to that. And he did do that. He would say, Kimberly, I want to find, I want to rule this way. Go write me an opinion. That's, there's, but the, the problem, it's not necessarily bad, Matt, right? Any 5-4 decision in the Supreme Court, any 8-1, 7-2, it means there's good arguments on both sides. Across the board, we want people with power to, to act with integrity. That is what we want. And I think people forget that. People in government have power that you and I don't have. If I throw you in the back of my car with zip ties, that's kidnapping. If the police do that, unless you can disprove it, that's an arrest that's constitutional and legal. And so when you talk about the president, you talk about judges, the question isn't, can they do something? It's what's the pushback if they abuse their power? Mm. It's That's always the question. What's the consequence? If there's no consequence to speeding, you will speed. You will not go 35. You'll go 50. If there's a thing in the bushes, you'll slow down. And right now, the problem with the Supreme Court is there's no consequences for speeding. There's no accountability. And we can talk about this at length, but this really did change when Mitch McConnell, as a matter of Senate procedure, got rid of the filibuster for Supreme Court justices. So when, prior to Justice Gorsuch, any president had to get 10 votes from the competing party for their candidate. So they had to get more mainstream people. Once it was just a bare majority and you really didn't need any Democratic support, Donald Trump was able to put people on the court that weren't in lockstep uh, or even sensitive to where the populace is. And, and that's one of the reasons we're here. I really wanted to read your article and say, okay, there are four charges here. This only affects two of them. But then you go and ruin the rest of my day by laying out how things could go wrong for the whole rest of the case, depending on what the Supreme Court does and the timing with which it does it. Could you just unpack that a little bit so that I can share my misery with the rest of our viewers and listeners? I'm not as sort of panicked about it, just so that- Oh, that's good. You you like um, to hear your lawyer say that she's not that worried. Yeah, because you there are these broader conspiracy charges and the court, they could go to trial and Donald Trump, the problem is to back up. If the Supreme Court reverses and they go to trial in March, which they're supposed to do, Donald Trump could appeal that and un disturb the entire conviction saying, oh, the whole trial was tainted by this Sox Act evidence bearing on these bad charges. You could argue the other two charges are broad enough to cover that evidence. And so he'd lose on appeal. We also have this immunity issue pending, right? So he's claiming complete immunity. The Supreme Court has been playing kind of hide and seek with that, refused to, to take an immediate appeal. It's in the D.C. Circuit now. So that could push that trial in March towards the summer anyway. Either of these matters could push the trial toward the summer. And then it's going to be up to Jack Smith and Judge Chutkin, who's a district court judge, to decide whether they're going to go to trial so close to November. I'll tell you what's going to happen is the Republicans are going to be screaming, listen, we're so close to an election. How could you be, how could, this is so political to go to trial against the one of the two primary, the candidate, the nominee. He's going to be the nominee for the Republican Party, no doubt. And the further we push this off, the stronger that political argument goes. And then the worst case scenario is that he creates some kind of motion that could that ties everything up past November. And that really, Matt, is his best defense. He doesn't have a strong defense on the facts. 
He doesn't have a strong defense on the law. It's going to be a jury in Washington, D.C. that are not a bunch of MAGA um, Republicans, unlike in Florida. So I think if it goes to trial, he's going to be convicted. And I, I don't and I don't think Judge Shutchin's going to not sentence him and treat him special. She's made that really clear. So delay is everything for Donald Trump. That's what really worried me here is that to put it in poker terms, this case gives Donald Trump a bunch more outs. It gives him the possibility of filing motions to delay. It gives him the possibility of his entire conviction being potentially tainted, or at least he could argue that it was tainted, because if these two counts are now suspect or reversed by the Supreme Court, and it gives him the ability to uh, pursue other kinds of appeals, and it's that delay factor. It's that introduction of more motions, more consideration, more delay, and that gives him the ultimate out, which is he gets reelected. And then that gets us right to your book. See how I did that? Yeah. Oh, I'm very proud of And that's for listeners to hear. I write these things. I, they do get people really nervous. But but I think it's it's dangerous to assume and not. And I, there are probably some people out there that do. Oh, these trials are going to resolve the threat that we're in. People need to vote, really need to vote. And I know that this isn't a, I'm not a political expert, but I know there's a lot of issues with Joe Biden around Gaza and other things and immigration. But it, it, we can't as Americans particularly with children, I have four kids, we cannot allow democracy itself to go in the trash bin. And that Donald Trump is promising that. So we can say, oh, he won't follow through on his promises. That hasn't happened to date. And I'm just not willing to take the risk. So the fact that there are these problems with these cases, as you indicate, the, the judges aren't going to necessarily save us. The Supreme Court's not going to save us. So we need to rally. And we have, what, eight months, a little over eight months to go. It's pretty dire in this moment, meaning people need to pay attention. Now I'll offer my own kind of balm for the worried here, which is obviously Democrats are super nervous about a string of state polls in key swing states showing Biden down to Trump in head-to-head matchups, four points, five points, Arizona, Michigan, Georgia. We've seen these things come out over the last few months. Just bear in mind, and I've covered this extensively on other podcasts where I've been a guest, we'll be rolling these out in the next few weeks. Just bear in mind that asking approval rating and even asking head-to-head matchup this far out doesn't mean a thing. It is in no way predictive. It's not correlated with final results. And many people have been giving themselves the mental luxury of assuming that Donald Trump will not be the nominee or just deferring the problem to later. I'm not going to worry about this until it's very close to the election. And look, I'm not trying to be Pollyanna about this, but it's a very different proposition to actually consider, are you going to vote for Donald Trump over Joe Biden? That is just an entirely separate mental calculus for most voters. You can tell me poll-wise that a conviction would make an impact even on Trump supporters. Yes. But in the second piece, and again, you can tell me if I'm wrong, my understanding is he's, he's winning. He won Iowa and he won New Hampshire, but the turnout was really low among Republicans. The turnout so, was really low. So so if that's the percentage that comes out in November, presumably be higher, but he did w- lose the last election. The Republicans didn't have the, the red wave at the midterms that people expected. People are upset about abortion. So just because the Republican caucus is hijacked by the far right doesn't mean in a matchup, those numbers are going to overcome independents and Democrats that are voting, frankly, for democracy, whether it's Joe Biden or his cat, honestly. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. 
Absolutely. I, too, would vote for Joe Biden's cat. I presume the cat doesn't actually bite people the way Joe Biden's dogs do. But regardless, yes, I would vote for Joe Biden's cat over Donald Trump. And so would many people in New Hampshire. So after the Iowa caucus, which is closed and just registered Republicans, failed to inspire much support for Donald Trump at all, 56,000 votes, that's 4% of registered Republicans in Iowa. This is not a ringing endorsement, people, okay? Very weak, very anemic performance uh, out of Donald Trump. The New Hampshire primary, which is open to independents, which they call undeclareds for no particular reason in New Hampshire, set a record. Over 300,000 turned out, many of them undeclareds, because they wanted to send a message that they don't want Donald Trump. And yes, to your earlier point, polling consistently shows that even among Republican supporters, back in Iowa, one-third, one-third of respondents in entrance polls said that they would not consider Donald Trump fit to be president if he were convicted in any of these cases. That is a whopping number among your core supporters. So look. Yeah, but he couldn't vote in certain states if he was convicted. Think about that. Oh my gosh. Listen, I, I what your article established is what's dangerous about Fisher is two things. One, we can't rely on the strict constructionists on the Supreme Court to do anything other than achieve the political result that they want. They're not going to be constrained by what the law and plain English would seem to say. And the other worry that you lay out is this just gives Donald Trump more outs. So I'd like to just come back and say, I think Biden's got a lot more outs than we're giving him credit for. I think there are many pathways that lead us to saving the republic. So I am I want people to be alarmed enough that they're motivated to show up to vote, but not so alarmed that they wreck their health in the next 10 months. I'm with you completely, but I appreciate the conversation because I don't think this is a case that is on people's radar, like immunity or Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, neither of which are going to have an impact. The court's going to going to say no to immunity, even the Supreme Court. Section 3 of the 14th Amendment requires enough states to basically capture the Electoral College, the 270 votes before November 4th. That's never going to happen. This is one. This is an actual case that could, I think, have an impact mm. uh, on one of these cases. I still think they'll go to trial. I think something's going to go to trial. It won't be Georgia, but one of the others will go to trial. Probably the first one will be the Manhattan DAs, which is less important and with smaller implications. But to my earlier point, they wouldn't have accepted this case after 300 convictions if they weren't going to meddle with how the Justice Department has used the SOX Act. They would have just let those things just let sleeping dogs lie, and they didn't. So they're not going to take it to say, oh, we love what the Justice Department has done. I, I just don't think that's realistic. And it's it that is kind of disturbing. And it also goes to show that it seems to be the nature of these Supreme Court cases that the very high profile ones, they kind of get all the headlines. But there are subtler ones, maybe a click down in the weeds that have sometimes the biggest impact. Let's just do a, qu a quick rapid fire on uh, a couple of others, because like we said, you cover the waterfront. You're the yeah, hardest looking. The yeah, there we go. Um, the yeah, go to the Substack. Well, you wrote another Substack uh, on simple politics, talking about the Chevron deference doctrine and this case, Loper Bright Enterprises v. Remo this has gotten a little bit of penetration into the media, but could just quickly walk us through. This is a BFD, as Biden would call it enormous implications. Chevron has been cited, this Supreme Court case that you're mentioning, has been cited more than 18,000 times. It's probably more influential at the Supreme Court level than any other major case. And essentially, just to back up a little bit, in 
to, to tour back to history to FDR and the New Deal. FDR and his Democratic Congress started creating agencies that were regulating in order to get the, the country out of the slump, the economic slump. Conservative courts started striking down those agency regulations saying only Congress can legislate. FDR pushed back and said, I'm going to pack the court with my Congress, and so I'll make it so that you can't strike down my legislation. The court backed off. And since then, since the 1930s, the court has said, listen, Congress can create agencies. What's an agency? Department of Commerce. Anything with the word department of in it or uh, commission, Federal Trade Commission, can create these bureaucrats. I know that's a pejorative term. And give them power to make laws, and we call them regulations. That's been the case since 19, for a long time. No one, Justice Thomas thinks that's unconstitutional. Others do. But the court is satisfied with it. Then along came under Bush. It was actually Justice Gorsuch's mother was head of EPA. They had created a regulation under the Clean Air Act and, and interpreted it really to favor polluters. And the Supreme Court said, we're going to let the agency's interpretation stick because they have the expertise. And Congress said they get to do the regulation. It's that decision, that Chevron decision, that the court is poised to overrule. And people are saying, oh, Congress should have the power, but Congress still has the power to pass laws. What Chevron will do if you overrule Chevron is it will take the power from regulators and give it to the Supreme Court uh, under Marburg versus Madison. Because just like we were talking earlier about how the Constitution's vague, statutes are vague. This, uh, Congress can't fill, can't anticipate every circumstance. And so Chevron says, if it's reasonable, agencies get to fill in the blanks because they have the expertise. If the court overrules Chevron, they're going to take that power for themselves. And so it'll be the court that interprets ambiguous statutes and regulates, essentially regulates for the rest of us and supersedes the agencies, supersedes the power of the president. Uh, and the president's elected democratically. So in theory, his cabinet is democratically accountable. Congress is democratically accountable. The Supreme Court is not. So this is, the Koch brothers are behind the plaintiffs in this case. This is a huge win for money and politics and big corporate interests, deregulation per se. The other side of the coin of the term bureaucrat, which has achieved a, it's really within my lifetime that the term bureaucrat has become negative. When I was at the Kennedy School of Government, all right, we used to have a thing called the bureaucrats ball, which was just like us going out for an evening because we all aspired as grad students at Harvard to become bureaucrats. The I know. other way of interpreting that term is you are a policy expert. You actually know what the heck you're talking about. And this comes up in the confluence of politics, policy, and the law all the freaking time. I can tell you as a reformed congressional staffer, we write statutes deliberately this way without filling in every nitty gritty detail for two reasons. One is we don't know all the nitty gritty details. We rely on experts at the agencies whose whole job, their whole career is to know this niche, this area of policy. The other reason is the difficulty that Congress has in passing anything these days, let alone bills that are way, way down in the reeds, the, com the complexity involved. If you think that a bill is long, something establishing like the, the ACE, for example, you have no idea the, the amount of regulation that goes on top of that in the federal register. You've got to figure out rules for all kinds of things. Now, if that sounds like a maze of bureaucratic red tape, yes, I guess it is. And that's not great. That's not something that I love in our system. But having the rules to follow 
is something that businesses actually welcome. Having certainty, having clarity, these are the rules, this is what you're supposed to do, this is how the law is supposed to work, is something businesses can deal with that. People That's can one of the justifications it. for Chevron, too, was the idea that we just need one rule for so people can plan, right, when they're P&L. So you, you can deal with it if you know what it is. And businesses right. will tell you this consistently if they're not crazy and addled like Koch brothers. And so I, all I can say about this is this is one of those cases I was alluding to a moment ago where, you know, it's it's getting some notice now in the media. It could be incredibly impactful if the court rules with the plaintiffs here it would undo the ability of all of these agencies to issue regulations, and it would call into question existing regulations that, that touch every area of American life and, and commerce. It would be enormously destabilizing. And right. do I believe that this court that's supposed to believe in settled law is going to say, yeah, let's leave that alone. We don't want to upend things. After Dobbs, I do not believe that. And I guess you don't either. No, and I don't think people understand what regulators do. We've been reading about pieces of planes falling off midair, right? Do you really want the Supreme Court justices making, being basically the last people that get to make a call on what how, an airline safety law, nuclear regulatory, storing nuclear fuel, deciding, Justice Kagan said at the oral argument, deciding if a new dietary supplement is a drug or not. If it's a drug, then it has to go through safety protocols. Uh, you might want doctors and scientists who know the science making that determination and not the, the justices on the Supreme Court doing it when we know at the same time people like Justice Thomas and Justice Alito are running around with billionaires. Justice Kagan well, herself, in the, in the case of social media regulation, said herself, like, she doesn't know anything about this world, right? She, noted technologist. Elena Kagan, this is not an area where we want judges to regulate. And it, it, the idea that they would insert themselves here is just, it's astonishing. And it's not something that anyone should hope for. All right, I've got to get you out of here. I just want to hit one more. You and yeah. I were chatting before we started the show and you brought up, that you, what you actually said is, oh, should we talk about Texas? And I have to say, I wasn't sure which horrifying thing about Texas you meant, but you meant the actions of Governor Abbott and this interaction with on immigration and border control, this sounds really troubling to you. Yeah, just the Republican Party in Texas for a few years now, one of the party platform um, elements has been secession from the union. I just want to put that out there. And the Supreme Court for many years um, reiterated in 2012 when Arizona tried to basically create created a law giving Arizona law enforcement power to deal with immigrants. The court said no. Greg Abbott is going head to head with Joe Biden on who gets to regulate immigration. And he's done three major actions. One is put those buoys up. The Fifth Circuit said no to that, created this, put up this concertina barbed wire. Three people died last week, a mother and two kids drowning and trying to get through that. And they're basically making it so the federal government can't get through it. And also Texas passed a law basically giving Texas officials the ability to round up people and start deportation proceedings. All of this is the court has always said this goes to the federal government again, Matt. So we have one policy for the country. We don't have one policy for immigrants in one place and another policy in another place. You can imagine this, the messed up incentives that would create in the chaos. And I think Greg Abbott is trying to set up a Supreme Court case um, because I mentioned United States versus Arizona 2012, 
the court said, no, president and Congress still get to manage immigration for a number of reasons. But Justices Thomas and Justice Alito both dissented to parts of that decision. So Abbott knows, right, knows that there's some energy on the Supreme Court to give states immigration power. There's a lot of political energy around immigration. And I mentioned the secession. We're heading increasingly with this collision between states and our and the nation and our us as a unified nation. And we cannot take that for granted in this moment. I just don't think we can. We especially can't because the core of this is essentially nullification. It's it's the 10th Amendment and it's nullification. And we fought a little civil war over that issue. And these we've already had insurrectionists. It's not stretching the case one bit to say that these are secession. That's the motivating impulse here. And we're I, I think we we're past the time where we can say, oh, that's going a little bit too far. There used to be an ironclad rule in politics. I literally for the members of Congress, for the politicians that I've advised as their chief of staff, campaign manager, whatever, I used to say, listen, don't bring up a reference to the Nazis. Don't compare anyone to Hitler because it always boomerangs on you. People will say, no, you're going too far. You're being extreme. Now we have a former president of the United States quoting Hitler. And so I think that we have to let go of, oh, these things are, are going too far. It's not going too far to say that secessionism is at the heart of Governor Abbott's motivating impulse here. And it is truly scary stuff. What a bummer to end on. So your well, book's Well, I just want to say part of why I write my books is don't listen to me. You're great, Matt. Don't listen to you. Educate yourself, right? Learn how to ride the Constitution bike, the politics bike, and make your own assessment. And I think I agree with you that a sober approach to this leads to some concern, deep concern. Kim Whaley, people can find you. Simple Politics with Kim Whaley, your forthcoming book, your many appearances on every broadcast network known to humankind. Uh, I primarily ABC these days. Primarily ABC. ABC these days. You've been on them all at one time or another. Yes. It's it's pretty astonishing. Well done. So thrilled to have you on the show. And we will have you back to talk about your book. And thanks so much for running all this down. Oh, it's been great. Thanks, Matt.